Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the UK's landmark exit deal with the EU, what it means for the next stage of the Brexit negotiations, and how Theresa May has sold the deal to her sceptical party. I'm delighted to be joined by our all-star lineup of Brexit experts, political editor George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, and from the Open Europe think tank, Henry Newman. Thank you all for joining. On Friday morning, the UK woke up to find that a deal had been done. After three weeks of intense diplomacy between Britain and the EU, a tentative divorce settlement was brokered. Nearly all the parties involved claimed victory. Theresa May said it represented substantial progress for Brexit. Supporters of leaving the EU, like Michael Gove, claimed their hard Brexit vision was still intact. Ireland was delighted with its concessions over the border question, while the EU appears satisfied that it has won all of the key arguments, especially about money. For the first time, this represented real substantial progress and paving the way towards a smooth exit. Alex Barker, let's just begin with an outline of what is and isn't in this deal. Can you just give us a main point of what's been agreed to close phase one of the Brexit negotiations? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to start with is it's, it's not just about what's in the divorce deal as what the trade-off is. They're making sufficient progress. And in response, the Commission, the European Council, the, the EU's leaders are adopting guidelines, basically pave the way to the trade discussion. Uh, they're pretty stripped down. There's not much about the future relationship, but they're in a bit more detail about the transition. And that's really a bargain that's taking place. And then you look at the divorce deal itself. There's the three big strands. Uh, the first one on money, the overriding important fundamental principle there is that the EU feel they're taking no risk. They don't feel any member state is going to pay an extra euro as a result of Brexit in terms of their EU budget contributions. The UK side sees this as a net figure, uh, rightly, and they're putting estimates on what that net figure is. And in the presentation of that, the range you hear of 40 to 45 billion euros. There are different approaches to that estimate, but it something that the Commission see as reasonable. The second big strand of citizen right, there the, the toughest political issue was over the role of European courts. There the UK won a bit of a victory. There is no direct jurisdiction of the ECJ in overseeing these rights in the UK, but they will have a, a role in making sure that the interpretation of EU law stays in line with the way that the ECJ sees it. British courts will pay due regard. That's an indefinite thing. And for a period of about eight years, you can refer cases. There's then a whole thicket of right eligibility rules in terms of the special provisions they're making for the three million EU nationals in the UK and one million Brits on the continent. 
I won't go into all of those, but it's a very detailed area, but largely it's based around existing EU rights, where, and the UK has won some concessions in terms of how family rights are applied in particular. And then the third part, which is probably the hardest to interpret of all, is on Ireland, and there's a clear statement that the EU wanted in terms of what commitments the UK will make to ensure there is no hard border in a no-deal scenario. What they're saying is that to maintain the Good Friday Agreement, you need to have full alignment between North and South on relevant regulatory areas. The fudge in this is that the next paragraph makes some commitments about the East-West relationship, about the integrity of the UK, that some here in Brussels probably think doesn't quite fit with the commitments they're making on the North-South relationship. But that is something we will see unfold. So for more of that, George Parker, <laughs> there is quite a lot actually in this divorce settlement. And you have to say that, you know, Theresa May gets a pretty rough ride of it, but she seems to have had done pretty well here because she began this week in a very precarious position. This deal was meant to be done on Monday and quite embarrassingly she had to leave the negotiations to take a call from Arlene Foster who's led of the DUP who are governing partners with Theresa May's Conservatives and by not squaring them off we had this tense standoff and there was talk of is it going to fall apart? Is it going to fall into next year? Or is there not going to be any deal at all? Where well, it now seems that she's actually done this and crucially she's brought her party with her that both Remainers and your sceptics seem to be singing its praises on Friday. Yeah, that's quite an achievement given where we were, as you say, on Monday where the DUP pulled the rug from underneath Theresa May's feet. And leaving aside party politics, just look at the bigger picture here. I think it's quite important from the point of view of democracy that this country has a government which looks like it can do things. I mean, we had a budget which didn't unravel for the first time in recent years and now we've got the Prime Minister actually delivering a deal in Brussels which, as you say, has surprisingly united her party broadly and seems to have, well, has succeeded in moving the talks on to the next stage. So I think that's good, just from a democratic point of view. But uh, yeah, Theresa May has had a tough time. She was really worried, I think, that the DUP would carry on saying no for quite a bit longer, taking us right up to the brink of the summit next week on the 14th, the 15th of December, which is, of course, the habit of the DUP. And I think she was greatly relieved when Arlene Foster sort of gave a reserved yes very late on uh, Thursday night. And Henry Newman, what do you make of this deal then? There was someone from the Treasury who described it as a drive-by shooting of Brexiters in the sense that a lot of the things and the red lines that have been put forward have actually been broken by this deal. But do you think that ultimately the principles of the Leave vote will still be intact beyond the divorce settlement and, you know, after Brexit Day? I think that quote evinces the lack of understanding of what Brexit has actually wanted from many in the Treasury. I think many Brexiteers will have will accept that, although they might not have got everything they possibly wanted, given the election result in June as well, which I think has made the, the idea of a transition appeal that I think those are on the sort of harder Brexit side of the party are more willing to swallow. I think this is a this is a basically a good result for the government. I think the the very big question is still the massive fudge on Northern Ireland uh, and trying to work out how that will be resolved in the next round will be extremely challenging. Particularly, I think it's the Irish government has since the transition to the new Taoiseach from Ender Kenny is playing much harder ball. But I still think for for Brexiteers, it's pretty clear that this is attracting good support. I think we had some sort of cautious criticism from Owen Patterson, who suggested that the money question needs to be reopened in the second round, which I think is unlikely. But I think basically most Brexiteers 
can live with paying some of the exit bill of this level. And actually, it's a sort of surprising that exit bill of, you know, sort of roughly about 35 billion ends up being a triumph. But that's sort of where we are politically. And George, I think on the Eurosceptic side of things, the line that I've heard from a lot of the ERG, which is kind of the, the hard Brexit caucus in Parliament, is that it's fine, nothing's agreed till everything is agreed. And their key point is that they're willing to nod this through, but they're still sceptical about what might come. So Theresa May has brought them to this stage, but she still might struggle to take them all the way to the line, depending on what the whole package on divorce and the future settlement is. Well, I think they're clinging to that, to that as a bit of a comfort blanket, because ultimately what you mean there is that right at the end of this process, the Eurosceptics are going to say, hang on a sec, we don't like this. We're going to walk away without a deal at all. And given the fact that the reason they've been so restrained, the mainstream Eurosceptics, is because they want Brexit to be a success. They don't want to wreck the economy. I think it's highly unlikely at the last minute they're going to pull the plug on this. I think there's another reason why the mainstream Eurosceptics are quite relaxed, and that's because we're now moving on to the second phase of the negotiations, the big question about Britain's future relationship with the EU. And it seems to me that what we will be offered, and Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator, mentioned this on Friday, is something like the Canada free trade deal. And that's more or less exactly what the Brexiteers want. They want Mm. an arm's length relationship with the EU where we can have a bit more freedom to do our things on regulation and tax. So they think ultimately they're winning. They're going to get Brexit. They'll probably get the kind of trade deal they want. And I think the idea they're going to rip it all up at the last minute is for the birds. Before we dissect the future thing, Alex, I just wanted to pick up on some of those issues here about what's in the settlement. Northern Ireland strikes me as possibly the most troubling thing here because as George said, um, Theresa May has been trying to square off Arlene Foster from the DUP who's got pretty hardline views on this with Leo Varadkar, who again has pretty strong views on this. So the fudge that is in there is really seem to be pleasing all sides. But from reading it, it sort of strikes me that unless there is some imaginative solution that no one's heard or thought of yet, the only way to maintain that soft border is going to be regulatory alignment or staying in a single market or customs union. Well, look, I mean, this is, as, um, as you were saying earlier, it's a huge fudge. What interests me is that this is a fudge that we have to put into a withdrawal treaty. So this has to be an illegally binding agreement between the UK and the EU at the point of exit, whereas the future relationship discussion is all a political declaration as far as the EU see it. So Ireland is that the kind of point at which thinking about the future and putting it down in a binding agreement that has to be voted through Parliament before Brexit meets. And for that reason, it's going to be terrifically difficult. And for the Irish, they see the binding commitment that made to the EU and to the Irish in terms of maintaining the regulatory alignment that allows the Good Friday Agreement to work. The other commitments that are made are really things where the UK is speaking to itself about the integrity of the UK, what it intends to do in terms of UK-EU alignment. That's not something the Irish and the EU are as interested in. They want the commitments on Ireland. The rest of it is more about how Britain is going to approach this future relationship. And this is really going to be unfolding in, in a dramatic way, I think, in the, in the coming months, because Ireland's going to be a distinct track in this trade negotiation as well. It's not part of you know, the big Canada trade deal, there will be a special team that look just at the Irish border issues. And that will not necessarily relate directly to what the other people are discussing in terms of the future relationship. So Ireland is the the kind of crucible for all of this. And uh, it's going to get quite messy, I think. Well, I would completely agree with that. And I think one of the, the problems that we've seen here is that the 
the number 10 in particular are quite irate with the Irish government. They, In their view, Ireland is becoming sort of more of a defender of single market doctrine and integrity than Brussels, which is which is somewhat strange. And if you look at the comments of former Irish politicians like Bertie Ahern, for example, he's been much closer to the British position and said that actually what's needed is a combination of technical solutions on and away from the border to deal with this, plus a blind eye being turned to some degree of cross-border traffic of goods. So I think there are there are ways through, but the danger is that Ireland is sort of boxed in politically. So on the exit bill, George, that um, when we, you know, it's not that long ago since Boris Johnson claimed the EU could go whistle for these large sums of money. And although the estimates began at sort of 100 billion euros, it's sort of been negotiated down by all sides. But I think the idea that Owen Paterson was saying this could be reopened seems a bit fanciful at the moment that I think very much the British government wants to get that done and move on. But again, we've still not really had any sign from Downing Street of how you sell this bill to people, given what we've talked about before, about how people feel about leaving and paying this still large sum of money. I don't think Downing Street necessarily feels it does have to do any more selling. I mean, this number's been knocking around for months and people don't seem to have risen up in the streets against it. I think what's interesting is that the Treasury seems to have won the argument with the Eurosceptics, actually. They said that basically this is small change down the back of the sofa and a tiny price to pay for a orderly British withdrawal and continuing good trade relations with Europe. And I think the other thing to say about the pro-Brexit wing of the party is they've never really been that worried about the money aspect of the European Union. What they've been worried about is sovereignty and things like the jurisdiction of the European Court. So as long as they're moving in the right direction on that, they're quite prepared to wade through the cash. And it's worth saying that I think the only time we've had a sort of sizable number on the record was interview that the editor of this paper did with the president of the European Commission, where President Juncker said that the bill will be over 60 billion euros. So it's also easy for the UK to present this as as a victory, particularly when you're talking about paying really for two years of continued membership in a transition. Alex? I mean, the big concession here was from the UK side on the financial settlement in that they promised to cover keep them whole and honour everything. And how that pays out over the decades, I mean, who knows what this final number will be? And the ranges can be played with. I mean, just remember that 40 to 45 billion doesn't include about 12 billion of contingent liabilities. So actually, if you, you could easily put the range up to 55, 6, just by including those contingent liabilities in your estimate. So the numbers are fudgeable in terms of estimates. It seems pretty amazing to me that the politics has been so kind of easy about uh, with this at the moment. I do wonder about the election and, you know, if the Labour Party are running a smart campaign, it's quite easy to tag this bill onto any other point you're making. You know, oh, the Conservatives didn't invest in public spending, but they paid the EU X. The Conservatives didn't get a decent trade deal, but they paid the EU X. And I wonder whether it might kind of linger in British politics for a bit longer than yeah. people think. And, and on the ECJ, George, again, Eurosceptics have kind of swallowed this pretty straightforwardly that for a decade there's going to be some kind of jurisdiction, this concept of direct jurisdiction that was first raised a couple of months ago and has now sort of been entered and taken the lexicon forward. But given that Theresa May made this very infamous red line saying there will be no jurisdiction of the ECJ, that doesn't really seem to be the case. And there's also been talk that the UK will, you know, stay in Euroatom and the European Aviation Agency and all these different things, which again, things with the jurisdiction of the ECJ. But we haven't still really heard much from your sceptics about that. I think the clause 
in this agreement uh, relating to the ECJ having a role in enforcing the uh, rights of EU citizens in Britain. It's just an amuse-bouche when it comes to the role of the ECJ after Brexit in Britain. And I think really, as you just alluded to, for a start, the European Court of Justice will have a, ro- a full role during the transition period, something that Theresa May said wasn't going to happen initially. The transition period may be around two years. Who knows, it might actually turn out to be longer. And then after that, there'll be a whole series of ways in which the ECJ will continue to have a role in British life, including enforcing the kind of European standards that many British industries, you mentioned aviation, the chemicals industries and other, Euratom, where we need someone to arbitrate on the rules and that will be the ECJ for years to come. I think, I mean, I think obviously we will have the ECJ during the transition. I th- personally, my bet is the transition lasting till the end of 2020, so about 21 months, but I agree it's a sort of move. And we can ask you about that. What happens yeah. if the trade deal's not in place at the end well, of 2020? Well, I don't think the trade deal will be. I think there'll be a sort of zero for zero agreement of some sort and they'll, we'll agree that we won't impose tariffs either way, but we'll be at that point out of the uh, other elements but we, we don't know yet i think on the ecj i think she is able to say that she has largely protected her red line because she can say that there's no automatic effect to the of the ecj it's up to british courts to decide british judges if they want to refer these questions to the ecj for a time limited period as you said of about eight years and it won't affect british nationals and i think that although probably most brexiteers would rather have had no involvement of the ecj at all in domestic decisions the area where they were sort of most sympathetic really was and probably more sympathetic than theresa may towards the EU was protecting EU nationals. Indeed, it was the policy of both Brexit campaigns to offer EU nationals a complete guarantee to their rights. Theresa May refused to do that. So I think it's sort of almost the the easiest area for her to concede some ECJ involvement on. And I think because this ECJ involvement is sunsetted, I actually disagree. I think it's less likely that this offers a precedent for ECJ oversight of any trade deal. And we're more likely to get, as we do, for example, in the Canada deal, a sort of joint body which has British judges and European judges and other third country judges arbitrating on any disputes. And finally, Alex, I want to talk about phase two, which is where we're heading to next and has been referred to earlier. So this will kick off some point next year. And as Michel Barnet said this week, it sounds like Canada is going to be the starting point. And some Brexiters say it's going to be Canada plus. But I suppose the big question to find out is how big that plus is going to be, or is it pretty much going to be what we've seen already? Well, I mean, before getting on to the plus, I mean, you've had quite a clear message today from from this side of, you know, yes, the red lines that the UK has laid out take you towards a Canada-style FTA model. But at the same time, they're saying, look, we still don't really know how the UK wants to approach this negotiation, what its priorities are, what its real model is, and that the UK needs to make up its mind and come to us. Donald Tusk was pretty clear about that today. The guidelines to the EU leaders are pretty clear about that. And you're seeing them hold back on laying out their own view of where that this relationship should end up, because they want the UK to take the initiative. They say, you know, the UK decided to leave. They should be the ones tabling the big ideas on where they should go first. So we're going to have a bit of a hiatus for a few months while the EU prepares its position and while maybe the UK will engage in this kind of big debate that's been put off for so long. On the plus, well, there's a lot of ways of looking at that plus. It might be unprecedented kind of level of access and cooperation in regulated industries and services. I guess that's what the UK's hope would be. For the EU side, I think the plus sometimes is thinking, well, we've got this big economy on our on our doorstep. That plus might need to be a lot of heavy conditions to make sure that there's a level playing field, to make sure that they're not a kind of backdoor into the market. Remember, the Canada deal almost got killed here because of the kind of complaints there were about it offering a backdoor to US business into the EU. So 
that plus might be a lot of constraint. And that plus actually for most people here is also thinking about what you add on to the sides of this trade deal, the kind of cooperation in other areas like you know security, JHA, justice and home affairs, that kind of thing. Uh, so at the moment, we've got a completely different concept of what that trade deal might involve. And frankly, the biggest battle here is going to be on the level of ambition they're going to have before 2019 in terms of how detailed this future relationship paper or declaration or whatever it will be is going to be, whether it looks like a trade deal or whether it really just looks like a set of principles that are the start of the negotiation that will be after 2019. And George, this is Theresa May's next challenge now, isn't it? Because she's now got to set, get her cabinet to have that discussion, which came is going to happen before the end of this year. So she's got two weeks left to sort of start talking to people and saying, OK, this is where we're going to go. And I think in all reality, even the most hardcore Remainers in the cabinet know that Canada is where we're going to be starting from here, because anything else that would be keeping close to the single market or the customs union wouldn't give controls immigration. People like Amber Rudd and Philip Hammond do accept that. So that's where they're going to begin. But it's still going to be a pretty difficult discussion. It is. Yes, that's one of the reasons why Theresa May's delayed having this discussion until after this divorce deal was settled. A lot of people like me have been looking forward to a sort of nuclear explosion when this uh, debate happens in the cabinet. I expect people will set out the positions very strongly. And I suspect at the end of that, that a lot of options will be left open. I suspect Theresa May, actually, despite our best hopes in the lobby might be able to just about hold it together until probably the new year when we see a bit bit more of the detail of exactly what it's going to look like. I think, yes, I think that's right. I think this is a crucial discussion that hasn't yet been had, but I do think actually her ability to hold the government together has proved a lot stronger than anybody uh, had anticipated over the last few months. Indeed, when we began this week, we were talking about when Theresa May would be going, and now you never know, she might still make it through Brexit. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Alex and Henry for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment we'll try and have something else with Brexit to talk to then. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. So until next time, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.